This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the New Book. New Books Network, an interview podcast with author, authors in a diverse set of fields. My name is Cody Scahan, an anthropologist by training, starting an MA program in anthropology at the University of Iceland in August 2022 as a Leifer Erikson Fellow. My work focuses on the intersections of queerness, environmentalisms, and tourism in Iceland, but I also have an interest in East Asia. Having previously conducted virtual ethnographic research along LGBTQ activists in Hong Kong, Today, I'm joined by Dr. Lin Tsong, a scholar of media and cultural studies and assistant professor in the School of Journalism and Communication at Jinan University in Guangzhou, China. He holds a PhD in gender studies from the Chinese University of Hong Kong and is currently working on projects related to emotional and al- algorithmic governance in China during the COVID-19 outbreak and erotic self-representation and queer cultural production in Chinese do-it-yourself pornography. But today, we're going to focus on his recently published monograph, which is his first book, and it's called Queering Chinese Kinship, Queer Public Culture and Globalizing China, and it's available in Hong Kong University Press's Queer Asia series. Thanks for joining me, Lin. Is there anything you'd like to add to yourself about yourself? Um, Thank you, Cody, for for having me. Um, I'm just going to say I'm excited to have this opportunity to share... um, thoughts in my book uh, to the audience. And uh, yeah, let's get started. All right, great. Yeah, it's a great book. So I hope everyone checks it out after listening to this. It's just really great, I think. Um, So just to introduce the the book real quick, I would like to read um, a summary quote that I think just perfectly encapsulates just about every facet of what the book is about. Um, So as, as Dr. Song says in his book, As I hope is clear from preceding chapters, queer public culture centered on a close engagement with blood kinship relation is complex and vibrant in illiberal China. Through various tactics, including negotiating boundaries of cultural intelligibility, creatively circumventing censorship, and harnessing the power of popular and commercial cultural products, Chinese queer culture carves out a resilient, albeit precarious space where queerness is envisioned and embodied. Casting a contrast to the common perception of queer culture in the PRC as avant-garde and underground, these multifarious queer articulations have a distinctly public dimension. Indeed, despite stringent censorship against queer-themed cultural products, queer sensibilities have found their way into Chinese popular culture and are enthusiastically embraced, particularly by the country's youth. This peculiar moment of simultaneous control and proliferation 
of queerness has profound implications not only for understanding China, but for thinking through cultural, queer cultural production in the world more broadly. Like I said, just like a wonderful, wonderful sum up quote. And um, what I would like to pull out first from that is kind of your objective in the book where you're kind of tr- writing against um, what you perceive to be a Western centrism in, in queer theory um, and trying to bring in sort of like an intersection, intersectional and international conception of queerness to partly disrupt homo-nationalist discourse. Um, at one point you say that queer theory needs China. So is this strictly about sort of detecting a sense of um, like making queer theory more inclusive about what it means to be queer? Or is part of this objective also like in line with a sense that queer theory needs to be like refreshed and revitalized? Yeah, thank you. That's that's a great question. Um, I think the, um, the, the fascinating aspect about queer theory um, is that it has n- no certain uh, forms or formulas um, when you think about the um, different ways that people choose to uh, lead their lives. And um, so uh, when I started uh, doing my PhD in gender studies, uh, when I first got in, um, I actually first got uh, um, exposure to Western queer theory when I was doing my MA. Uh, but uh, the deeper I dig into uh, the sort of um, repertoire of queer theories, um, the more distracted I felt uh, with it, especially uh, coming from a sort of Chinese perspective of things. Uh, because as I uh, shared in my book, a lot of the... Um, privileges, uh, for example, of uh, coming out to one's family and probably start a family of choice somewhere uh, away from your uh, blood family members are uh, something uh, that I could not do um, uh, personally. Uh, I cannot sever ties from my family that easily, or uh, there are more difficult negotiations that I had, uh, for example, with blood kinship ideologies. Um, So the very starting point uh, of me writing this book is really to reflect on uh, the sort of different uh, experiences that Chinese queers are facing uh, from their Western counterparts. And uh, I did not intend to pose any sort of dichotomy uh, with, for example, Chinese queer theory or Western queer theory, because I think uh, queer theory itself should be capacious enough uh, to to account for the experiences of queer people around the world. And uh, uh, so I would not say that this is to challenge queer theory or to, to, to reinvent queer theory, because I think the, the very kind of deconstructive impulse uh, that the book uh, sort of spells out is already embedded in uh, the, the the threads of queer or Western queer theorization itself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because throughout the book, you do draw on um, different queer theorists um, at times, sort of working alongside them. Um, like Gail Rubin, in particular, uh, is one that really stuck out to me. Um, but at times, sort of like maybe adding or like uh, changing a little bit what they've said, like we kind of do in any academic discipline. So working with and um, kind of thinking through, but I think it's really interesting is that like um, you also draw on a lot of like 
queer theory that's being done by uh, scholars working in like similar fields as you, like working with um, Asian populations, Chinese populations. Um, and so you get a really a, a slightly different sense of like what kind of uh, work is being done in queer theory in the world. So I think it's in, in that way, it's really good at exposing um, to really the wide range of queer theory that's being done in places outside of the West, which um, is of course typically uh, dominated dominates the academic world. So I really appreciate it for uh, for that sense. And um, yeah, so uh, I, I guess I'm wondering if you could just briefly talk about a little bit more about how um, coming out is perhaps different from. Um, it's kind of viewed in the Western world or portrayed in the Western media, uh, like how different it is in China. Like you talk about instead of coming out, you talk about coming home. So could you just kind of briefly describe that dichotomy or that difference? Yeah. Um, so uh, the the whole rhetoric of coming out is central to what I perceive uh, as the sort of canonical uh, work that constitute Western queer theory. Um, so the in the book that I referenced a lot in my own work, uh, which is Cass Weston's uh, Families with Shoes, which is a classic, of course, in the theorization of queer families, um, the, uh, the, cent- the the centrality of coming out is, is self-evident. I don't think I need to talk uh, more about it, uh, but this whole rhetoric of uh, this alignment of an inner self, right, and an outer self, uh, this uh, uh, discourse of uh, being honest with your sexual identity and living your own truth uh, is, um, I think, central to the sort of Western uh, liberalist and liberationist uh, queer politics, uh, but in the context of China, I think the the the, the idea is more complex. Um, the phrase "coming home" that you mentioned come, uh, came f- from the Hong Kong scholar uh, Chou Shan, who wrote about postcolonial queer theory and who argues uh, for the acceptance of homosexuality within the Chinese blood family. I referenced this work and I really appreciated uh, his work, but I did not uh, 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 completely agree with his formulation of coming home because I think it's too romanticized because there are a lot of power struggles uh, and repressions, of course, going on in the Chinese uh, biological family itself. Uh, but I think what my book is trying to do is, is really to bring uh, back attention to blood kingship, uh, because this is what Chinese queers are negotiating with uh, on a daily basis. But it seems to be something that uh, the so-called Western queer theorists have already moved on. If you look at, for example, uh, writings on queer family, people are already uh, talking about uh, same-sex marriage uh, or the advancement of uh, reproductive technologies and uh, and queer parenting. Um, so I think it's important to, to sort of uh, take a step back and look at the premise of uh, this whole uh, blueprint of queer politics that derives from this rhetoric of coming out. And if we do that, then probably uh, we can account for uh, the people who are struggling, right, still with their, uh, with this action of coming out, which seems easy enough uh, for some more privileged people. Um, so I think um, 
I built a uh, uh, a lot of my arguments in the book of this idea of maybe we need to uh, step back and rethink what blood kinship, uh, what role blood kinship really plays uh, in queer lives in China. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, so it's kind of a, like saying, hey, hey, queer theorists, like there's some we need to take a step back here. There's kind of some stuff we need to reevaluate. Um, it's everything's not as like set in stone and, and as like maybe far advanced as we kind of sometimes think it is. And by rushing ahead of ourselves, we're going to miss out on in capturing important um, ways of people expressing themselves and the ways that they have to negotiate and really um, like um, live because um, a, a sort of, you kind of trace this, um, these dynamics of like both like kind of queer survival, but also like, um, queer expression. So ways that like, um, queer people in China have to like negotiate and, and make sure that they can, um, they're able to like exist and kind of like not be completely, um, repressed within the, the, um, kind of, especially the Chinese blood kinship sort of family structure. Um, so yeah. Um, you also talk about, um, like you focus a lot on media sources throughout the book. So um, there's a quote that says media representation offers queer moments that not only correspond to the everyday realities that queer people face, but also reflect on negotiate and imagine these realities in in generative ways. So I guess, yeah. Could you talk a little bit how um, media is a a site for negotiation for um, as, as the book title is called queering Chinese kinship. Yeah, um, so uh, let me probably just go a, a little bit back uh, to the uh, coming out uh, question and how Chinese queer politics is different from Western queer politics. Um, I think I referred to this uh, imagined Western queer politics somewhat like a straw man that I'm trying to attack in my own uh, work, which is probably true. But uh, let me just uh, clarify that uh also, a lot of work, uh, uh, a lot of works are being done in Western queer theories that challenge this whole narrative of progressive queer politics. Right? Uh, for example, people have been discussing what's after same-sex marriage legalization, and uh, do we actually uh, leave out uh, parts of the LGBTQ community uh, as we pursue certain goals? in queer politics. So I think in that way, this book also connects to a larger uh, sort of global reflection on uh, what queer politics can be by drawing on the Chinese experience. So it's not just directly a dichotomy. Um, um, so I, I just want to, uh, first of all, clarify that. And uh, as far as media representation is concerned, um, um I write on media because I was trained in uh, literature, actually. I was trained in textual analysis, and I'm more familiar with uh, the methodologies that people use to analyze cultural products. But I think media uh, is uh, particularly interesting because um, it has not only different ways of representation, of circulation, but also of uh, interpretation. Um, I think in a way... Uh, although the whole environment for media production and consumption in China is very restrictive, 
because of uh, of course censorship and also uh, 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 the uh, 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 distribution of certain works, for example, uh, independent uh, documentary uh, and art house cinema that I, I talked about in my book. Uh, but it's also very, very free in the sense that it, it gives people the space uh, to really, not only the directors, right? I talked about how directors use media uh, to sort of experiment with queerness, but, but also uh, it enables audiences uh, to interact with the specific uh, media genre uh, in their imagination of queer politics. Uh, so I think it's in that sense, the sort of openness and uh, the sort of creativity of uh, media representation in China that really uh, fascinates me. And uh, uh, I picked five very, very different media genres and case studies. Uh, but I think you can see that kingship runs through like a thread, uh, uh, even when it is absent. For example, uh, when I talk about the, the Broadway musical, uh, there is no reference to kinship ideologies, but even when it's rep, uh, it's uh, absent on the stage, you can still see how it it constitutes the central concern in people's imagination of queer politics. Um, so I think um, um, partly partially I'm engaging with media representation because of my training as a cultural studies scholar. Uh, but also I think uh, media is a very creative and imaginative kind of realm uh, that's a little bit different from uh, more grounded, for example, social, uh, sociological and anthropo- anthropological theory that in- enables me to do uh, more uh, uh, theorization of what queerness is and what queerness can be. And that fits in quite well with queer theory uh, because queer theory it's itself, as you know, a um, um, derived from textual analysis and uh, philosophical kind of theorization. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That that clarification was very, very welcome. Um, that's probably my, my fault for not being a little bit more clear about, yes, your um, queer theory is very expansive. Um, and there are, especially within um, like indigenous uh, scholars working within queer theory, kind of also helping to push what kinship really means, especially for um, queer families and what kinship can look like. Um but yeah, so that um, what you're talking about, like about um, media being a little bit more open, a little bit more grounded um, or a little less grounded allows for a little bit more theorization. Um, you kind of I think I really appreciated your um, kind of intervention into like how queer theory sometimes does textual analysis. Um, you talked about how um, you really contextualize and you, and you talk about how you think it's really important to contextualize the the sources that you're reading um into like i feel like in the way the way you dealt with these topics um although they were like more flexible and openness and all of that it was also still somewhat grounded um it felt really connected to people's actually everyday experiences because you're talking about the influences um that kind of helped um, generate these genres and kind of like some of the stuff that's going on behind the scenes somewhat, um, especially with like sort of the Broadway play um, and some of the documentaries. 
Um, and I thought what was really striking about the Broadway play, I love the part where um, they're collecting they're collecting donations for like something going on during the play, and then afterwards they announce that all those donations um, that were ostensibly for something in the play actually are going to uh, P Flag China. Um, so you talk about P Flag China as being kind of like kind of um, the biggest uh, or at least like most visible perhaps um, queer organization in China. And um, they often are like um, deeply involved in some of these um, documentary projects or other media projects that you talk about in the book. Um, so I, I was wondering if you could just kind of talk a little bit more about maybe the significance of PFLAG China um, or just kind of why perhaps why um, PFLAG China, especially in relation to like the importance of blood kinship is so important for like, or is the biggest, um, most visible um, organization within China for, for queer um, sort of negotiation and things. Yeah. Um, so uh, people like China uh, is very, very different from other uh, international kind of people, PFLAG organizations. Uh, because it's formed mainly by parents uh, of uh, queer children, right? So um, um, it is, uh, as you said, uh, one of the more prominent uh, activist organizations in China, although it's not, I, I don't think it's ever registered as an, uh, an uh, NGO uh, because of certain restrictions. I think it's uh, registered actually as a company in China, operating actually here in the city that I'm currently based in, it's 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 operating in Guangzhou. Uh, but I think uh, uh, partially uh, uh, why people like China has uh, had a lot of influence. Um, uh, at, at, it, at this point, I should probably also say that uh, uh, it's not a coincidence that a lot of the materials that I ch- chose. Uh, were connected to PFLAG China, right? Because I was consciously choosing uh, uh, cultural products that had a wider reach uh, as opposed to, for example, only underground and avant-garde kind of artistic creations. Um, so it has uh, this connection with PFLAG China and PFLAG China has currency in China because um, it draws on the rhetoric of the family. And uh, that uh, is not directly confrontational with what the Chinese government is trying to um, promote, right? Uh, it's all about family values. Uh, it's not about, uh, it's not the Western style of, for example, confrontational queer politics. And um, if you look at uh, the work that, that the, the works that it has done, it's all about love and acceptance uh, and about uh, familial harmony, which is, which was a big thing and is still a big thing in, in the Chinese um, official narrative. Um, so it has been very smart incorporating uh, with the Chinese officials. Uh, so I would say culturally and politically, uh, it gained currency because uh, how uh, the blood family uh, is seen as an important um, uh, unit of not only uh, the sort of queer uh, negotiations, but also state governance, uh, biopolitical governance uh, over people's lives. Uh, but as I, I think I stated uh, at several places in my book, I do have my own reservations about uh, people like China 
because it promotes a very kind of homonormative image of healthy, uh, the sunshine, gay people um, who will be reproductive at some point, right? Who, who are successful and reproductive, who will start a family, uh, which rings about actually with the uh, kind of uh, American ideal uh, gay family, right? With, with a couple and a child and probably a dog and house. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think, I think the, uh, the case of Pivot like China is interesting because it brings together all these different kind of facets of queer activism, cultural production, and the kind of cultural negotiation that queer people uh, do in China, but also brings out the kind of limitations of uh, these particular set of queer politics that has uh, grown very prominent in the Chinese society. Yeah, for sure. As you mentioned, um, and and some of you're looking at some of your documentaries, uh, some of the documentaries you look out in the book and stuff. Um, oftentimes, these kind of media representations that are associated with Pete Flag China kind of have very like explicit ways of engaging with family life, or uh, they have. There's kind of these set tones of like, like you said, kind of this homonormative image of. Um, one day you're going to be reproductive. You're, it's kind of like accept um, the sort of relationships that are like oftentimes shown to be accepted or ones that like you are forming these really close ties with your family. And um, it's like usually a monogamous couple um, and, and yeah, kind of just kind of whitewashed a little bit, not exactly whitewashed may not be the right term, but um, uh, yeah, sort of just this really clear and um, um homonormative image that's kind of promoted by the state um, or I guess the heteronormative lifestyle that's promoted by the state made as close as possible through a sort of homonormative image. Um, so I was, I was wondering if you could then maybe talk about some of the influences um, like sort of the broader influences um, that kind of uh, drive forward these images and make them. Um, so for example, you talk about the context of like, um, post-socialist China. So, um, kind of having gone through, um, all these upheavals and changes and, and different, um, like, like communist party policies and things like that. And then kind of the cultural sphere or the political sphere that China is kind of in right now. Um, so how, how have those influences kind of, affected how um, biopolitical governance of families and representations of families um, has affected queer kinship? Um, that's, um, that's a very good question, but it's a very, very broad one. Uh, it probably requires like a whole hour of explanation of Chinese, uh, recent Chinese political and cultural history. Uh, so I'm just going to give you like one simple example that's also related to people like China. Uh, People Like China actually was forced to change its name, I think, two or three years ago, uh, to Chu Self. It's now Chu Self. Uh, the organization is called Chu Self. And uh, uh, because of its uh, activist sort of background, because the government is aware of what the, uh, the work that it has engaged in, right? Uh, so... Uh, I would say that uh, from the time that the book was written, which was uh, during the years of 2013 to 2017, 
2018 to 19, probably. Uh, that's when I drafted my PhD dissertation, which the book was based on. And to uh, the current situation in China, um, where uh, the government is starting to be worried about uh, population numbers, for example. Um, and there, there have been new policies in place to encourage people to give more birth. Um, and, uh, so you can see how this whole social cultural environment policy change is really, uh, reshaping the way that, for example, the, the kind of activism in my book, um, is being, ta- uh, is being taken out, right? Um, so, uh, I, I think, uh, the, the sort of organ- organizing work has become more and more difficult for people like China, for example. And uh, you must have read uh, in in the media about uh, multiple LGBTQ related crackdowns on the part of the Chinese government, um, which is uh, presumed to be all related to a higher level policy uh, of uh, biopolitics related to the Chinese family and population growth. Um, so I think it's important to probably to to situate all the discussions. Uh, against a larger historical background. And China is changing so fast. Um, a lot of the things that I wrote in my book has already changed in the past two or three years. Um, so I think uh, if you're reading the book, probably you should also be aware of that change of the kind of historical background. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think that ha- that happens a lot of times in um, academia where it takes a while to get a book out or um, just by the time maybe a book picks up sort of a little bit more relevance, then it's like it's already kind of like a lot of the things described in the book aren't exactly as they are today, which is, I think, pretty a pretty common theme kind of running throughout the book because you're very explicit about talking about queering Chinese kinship and kind of um, the subtitles queer public culture in globalizing China. Like it's all about this sort of dynamic process. Um, you're very clear to mention that like, like you, everything's negotiated, um, changing every day kind of. Um, it's just this thing that's commonly in, in flux and especially that's kind of um, that seems to be uh, shaped strongly by the the uh, Chinese context that you're writing within of um, just this constant negotiation between censorship and um, at times self-censorship. And then I think uh, what might be interesting to bring now is sort of like the, when you talk about um, commercialization. So especially with um, the blogging by um, the... Um, young young sort of younger queer uh individuals um and how their um kind of construction of their self is um and their presentation of their self online is kind of strongly shaped by these kind of commercial um ideologies and kind of a little bit of a a self self censorship due to the platform they're working on and due to Chinese censorship. So um, uh, I wish, could you talk a little bit more about like sort of the commercial limitations to um, the sort of uh, representation of um, queer, yeah, queer kinship and stuff? (coughs) Sorry. um, um, So uh, I think... um, one um, kind of contribution that I'm trying to make to the discussion of Chinese queerness 
is really to introduce this idea of commercialization and how uh, queer politics can be intertwined with commercial forces. Um, because commercialization is usually seen as really, really bad. Uh, it, it's seen as domesticating, uh, for example, queer politics. Uh, it's it's seen as uh, de-radicalizing queer politics. Right? Uh, but I think in China, um, and uh, speaking about uh, the, 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 the changing times, for example, I think what I, what I strive to do in my book is, uh, is really to, to sort of delineate a logic of how queer, queer politics and queer cultural productions uh, can actually survive in the public eye. And uh, one of the ways that I located uh, is commercialization. Uh, because uh, it is in commercial uh, channels, right? For example, when talking about talk shows or variety shows or uh, musical and uh, the Bilibili videos that I talk, that, that I wrote about uh, in my uh, book, um, that people have uh, free uh, have the freedom uh, partially to to express themselves and and sort of to to utilize um, creatively but also with limitations, uh, these kind of queer sentiments. Um, so the, uh, the Bilibili vloggers that I talked about uh, in my book consciously use uh, BL or G, uh, that's boys love or girls love narratives in order to, uh, to sort of brand themselves right, as this cute uh, gay couple or lesbian couple, which I think is very interesting because... Uh, uh, I, I also took a look at YouTube coming out videos, and usually uh, people do not come out as a couple, right? They come out as an individual, and there is usually padding beforehand, and also uh, some maintenance work to do after they come out to their fans. Uh, but unbelievably, uh, the, uh, these vloggers almost invariably come out as a couple. Um, and I, I would say that this is connected to the popularization of uh, BL and geo narratives in China and also in Asia and probably globally. Uh, I'm sure you have heard of Heartstopper uh, recently on that. Yeah, of course. Um, so it's, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think it's uh, these kind of commercial forces. I think they they really give the vessel for 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 queer cultural production uh, to to boom. And uh, actually, to to thrive in the uh, in the Chinese context, but of course, they come with their own limitations, right? And talk about these limitations in my book in terms of uh, monogamy, right? Uh, in terms of this uh, long uh, term uh, relationship, and uh, also in terms of how it also always engages with the Chinese family in a bit. Uh, to secure their own uh, perceived authenticity among the audiences. But I think it's fascinating uh, because there are so many uh, these kind of vlogs on Bilibili. Um, and uh, Bilibili is actually a, a, a quite uh, strictly censored platform. Um, so uh, I would say that these commercial channels uh, uh, make constitute one of the very few kind of spaces for Chinese queer people um, to to socialize and to express their desires, and uh, uh, and that has to do with this kind of 
very illogical, illiberal culture of China's simultaneous um, economic liberalization and tightening social control. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade Two. Play it now with Game Pass. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, I really appreciated too um, when you're talking about commercialization, especially in terms of the bloggers. Um, is like sort of the um, audience interaction with, um, the bloggers, especially with like sort of the bullet curtain comments. Um, so it's like these, the bloggers are definitely having this sort of, uh, commercialized representation of their, um, of the couple of who they are of queerness. Um, and it, like you said, this is what this, these kind of platforms, um, are, are what enable sort of queer, um, uh, representations to be really shown, even these commercial sensibilities, even as they sort of limit it, they also allow it to exist. Um, but you also talk about how the audience engagement, um, especially in you kind of called the carnivalesque aspects of Chinese internet, um, allows for this sort of emotional masquerade, uh, allows for a creative break from state domination, um, and have these like tr- transgressive po- potentialities of self-making. So in some ways it's, it's limiting, but also in other ways, um, the audience is like finally able to express themselves and sort of connect, which I think is especially something that's, um, kind of common among, um, young, young queer teenagers, um, all around the world is kind of the internet really allows for a sense of like, um, connection and self-expression for the first time. Um, especially with the anonymity of the internet. Um, so, yeah, I, I, could you talk a little bit more maybe about uh, sort of the bullet curtain comments and how you think they explicitly kind of allow for this? Right. Um, I, I really like um, the, the, bullet comment, uh, the bullet curtain comments uh, because when I, when I first looked at them, I, I was shocked. Right? Um, I was shocked because uh, there were so many people who, who are coming out in, in this comment. And uh, we're talking about a country where uh, in, in, in most parts of China, you do not even have any pride parades, and uh, let alone homosexual representations, uh, for example, on, on the screen, right? Um, so uh, it, it's a very strange moment of uh, pleasant surprise for me as well. Uh, but also, I think it's a very, very interesting moment uh, because we were t- talking about coming out at the start of this uh, conversation. Um, and this uh, bullet uh, curtain comment, actually, it, it resembles coming out, right, in many senses. It's people announcing their sexuality, uh, their sexual orientations publicly uh, on the public plat- platform and explicitly for others to, uh, to know. But also, uh, it's anonymous, uh, which means that uh, this whole, if we see coming out as a speech act that generates uh, effects uh, about one's true self, this kind of true selfhood is also 
uh, failed in this uh, an anonymous internet environment. Um, so that's a very peculiar moment for me. Um, uh, and I, I think that that kind of captures the essence of uh, of uh, some of the uh, digital kind of uh, internet uh, 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 queer politics in China. Um, uh, it might not be um, directly confrontational. It might not even be uh, liberating on a very personal level. But but uh, somehow when you see the bullet curtain comments coming together and occupying the whole screen, actually, um, I think it's a it's a moment for uh, of empowerment for people who are watching the the, the coming of of vlogs uh, for people uh, for for example queer people um, to know that they are not alone, uh, even though they may not know uh, exactly who these commenters are. Um, I think that's a very, very interesting moment that I have observed uh, when, I was, when I was doing the project. And uh, I think that's somehow also uh, this strange moment of coming out but not coming out, of people coming together and forming this um, uh, uh, sort of temporary kind of queer community online uh, but also somehow permanent because the bullet uh, curtain comments will al always be there. So anyone who logged in and watched the video will see the bullet uh, curtain comments. I think it's that kind of complexity that really um, uh, touched me uh, in many ways. And I think that's the complexity that I'm trying to convey throughout the book of what Chinese queer politics uh, could be and uh, how fascinating it actually can be. Yeah, I, I like um, the kind of materiality almost of the bullet curtain comments of, like you said, literally covering the screen. So it's not so much just, you know, a bunch of comments that you'll see below a YouTube video or on most social media, but it's like something that's actually very viscerally as you're watching um, the video or vlog um, and it shows, you know, at different moments um, how the audience is interacting with um, the vlog. So you mentioned like during certain moments, uh, you mentioned uh, shopping moments, I think, um, where like it, the audience is literally like challenging or supporting in, in some ways um, the moments of the vlog of, for example, like a coming out vlog when there's a, uh, the, the actual moment when the um, when the vlogger comes out or the, the couple comes out, that's typically when um, the audience will uh, have a really high uptick of comments that literally sometimes cover the screen or like there's kind of these moments of just um, showing sort of the representation of like, Oh, look how cute of a couple we are. And, and that you had, you mentioned commenters would talk about, man, I wish that were me. Or um, I think another striking moment was when, um, the uh, one of the vlog couples was um, kind of talking with um, one of their parents Their I, I believe it was their mother um, and kind of was um, showing this sort of domestic um, uh, tranquility in a way of like the mother accepted the um, the lesbian couple. And there was a bunch of comments saying like, oh, wow, I wish my mom was that nice. So you kind of, and, and, and I, like, um, you kind of talk about this sort of like idealization or this, this certain um, like 
tranquil image of of like kinship. So I think it's really interesting how that is like like you said, it's kind of different from like YouTube coming out videos and the fact that it's still really um, connected to these these images of queer uh, of Chinese kinship, blood kinship, um, even in this sort of queer context in the, in the vlogging context. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think that was probably my favorite section in the book. I be- actually, um, it was just so interesting and, and very, um, uh, in some ways, like you said, different, but also the, the same to, um, sort of, uh, YouTube and, and other platforms like this. Um, so h- how, like, I guess just generally, um, like how important is the sort of online context for, um, sort of queer, not only for maybe teenagers, but just um, other other groups, other uh, other queer individuals for just um, building a sense of community and and um, maybe you know doing some of this negotiation that you talk about within the Chinese or even broader context. Um, right. Um, so. Um, I think I talked about, uh, I wrote um, two or three, I think three chapters in the book uh, that focused um, exclusively on digital uh, representations and sort of digital communities around queer cultural productions. Uh, um, the kind of, um, I think I talked about that in um, in the first case study when I talked about uh, the digital circulation of documentaries and how they open up spaces for people uh, to to feel into the way of queer politics, um, and I, I drew on the uh, idea of course of affective topics, and um, so I think um, the the kind of connectiveness right uh, of uh, of the uh, the internet uh, uh, of of course empowers people uh, to 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 share information. Um, to know more about their sexuality and uh, so on and so forth. I, I think that's an old tale. I don't think I need to repeat that. Um, um, uh, but after the book, I also did uh, some other research on uh, DIY pornography, which you also talked about, uh, where I wrote about people's uh, consumption and production of porn on Twitter uh, among Chinese gay men. And uh, one thing that uh, I think I need to say is I, I don't really like the word community. Um, I think it has a political uh, sort of uh, implication there. Um, and I think in the Chinese context, I don't think people actually form a, a, an online community. Um, maybe that would sound uh, strange, uh, but I, I think... Uh, I, I see it more as a sort of t- temporary, transient gathering of people. Um, that's why I refer to it as publics. Right? Uh, I, I think uh, you do not simply belong to an online community because these online spaces, especially in China, it's so fluid and uh, it changes so fast and it, it can get shut down so fast. It, it, it's so full of uncertainties. And uh, engaging in overtly political actions uh, is also so risky for ordinary citizens. Um, so I would not necessarily see them as a kind of fixed uh, unity of community of queer people. Uh, but I think people gather around certain, let's say, nodal points 
of uh, internet coaches. Um, they, may, they might be connected by certain events and or certain cultural content uh, that they share. Uh, and they make comments and they, they, they make connections right, uh, on that certain event. But then um, I think that that's also the, the kind of uh, characteristic of the internet. Uh, it, uh, nothing really lasts that long. So I would rather see it as this fluid kind of publics that gather around one certain event or topic or cultural product um, and that generates certain kind of uh, effects or even queer politics. Uh, but um, I don't think that kind of space is quite lasting um, and quite fixed uh, to, to enough to form a community, if that makes any sense. And I think that's probably the, the kind of sort of uh, transient, uh, kind of always changing uh, and even nomadic kind of uh, queer politics that I try to capture in my book because uh, everything just changes so fast in China's context. The internet is changing so fast. Censorship mechanisms are, are changing so fast. Um, even these kind of uh, LGBTQ uh, organizations are changing so fast. Um, uh, I don't uh, think uh, there risk. Uh, if there is a community, it's probably multiple um, transient communities coming together to form uh, um, what is known as the Chinese LGBTQ community. Yeah, that's that's really great, um, especially because um, sort of you're in the book you talk about, like I kind of mentioned earlier, the carnivalesque aspect. So it's it's sort of this, yeah, moment of um, liminal space of, like you said, that's very transient and, and um, kind of could, could disappear at any moment. Um, uh, I really like the use of effective publics. I think that's um, makes to total sense, and it's very clear about what you're trying to get across here. Um, so, uh, just kind of building off that a little bit, um, we've been mostly talking about um, just kind of China, but in your book, um, you kind of um, at points draw this as like um, it's not so much just mainland China, who's um, kind of influenced by a lot of the, um, like, for example, media representations that you're talking about with, um, I'm thinking of like the talk show, um, the internet talk show um, that you're talking about. Um, it's kind of, you mentioned the term sort of like glocalized. So it's uh, both globalized and localized um, in terms of like, a very much focused on the uh, local context of China, but also influenced by um, global influences. Um, but yeah, still a very local context. But then you also talk about sort of like this, um, like kind of um, not exactly the Chinese um, speaking center periphery. You kind of challenge that a little bit um, using the term sort of like critical regionality and, and things like that. So could you kind of talk about maybe the Chinese speaking sphere a, a little bit more and how these kind of the media products that you look at in this book kind of go beyond, um, just mainland China? Yeah. Uh, of course. Thank you for that question. It's, it's uh, actually one of the core kind of questions, um, it's, it's one of the more difficult questions that I try to unpack in the book. 
Um, uh, that is when I talk about when I talk about Chinese queerness, for example, what exactly is Chinese, right? And uh, when I talk about China, um, what is China? And um, so, of course, this is um, not to be answered fully in the scope of this book. Um, um, for example, historically and politically, China may, may be understood very differently. But uh, for the book, um, I call it a globalizing China because I situate the book in the post-2008 um, uh, Chinese mediascape. Um, and this is the time where China has gone through rapid globalization. And I'm, I'm, I'm using the word globalization in both in the sense um, of economic globalization of China joining, for example, WTO, and also the kind of cultural globalization. Right? If you look at, um, for example, uh, my discussion of... Sorry. <coughs> If you look at my discussion of um, of the um, art house film uh, called Spring Fever, directed by Lo Ye, um, and uh, sixth generation Chinese filmmaking, you will see that a lot of um, the cultural producers, right, uh, for example, uh, film directors, are already operating in a very transnational and globalized um, kind of sphere. Um, so uh, when I define it as Chinese, it's uh, this kind of Chineseness is always situated against the background uh, uh, of transnational flows of knowledge and capital. I think uh, probably the 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 uh, the third chapter on the uh, film Spring Fever is um, I think it, it speaks to this question about Chineseness um, um, most directly. Right, uh, because if you look at the director um, uh, and uh, his engagement in transnational film festival circuits, uh, such as uh, Cannes um, Film Festival, where the um, the, the film Spring Fever um, uh, earned its fame, um, then you will see that this kind of cultural production is <coughs> always already um, transnational in itself. It has to cater for, for example, transnational audiences. It has to attract transnational capital. The film is a Hong Kong French co-production, and uh, it's uh, actually introduced back to China through uh, informal transnational circuits of pirated copies of DVDs. Um, so I would say that China is uh, always and already. Um, in a transnational context, in the in all these kind of case studies in the book, <coughs> so um, but this is also a, a sort of ongoing process, right? Of um, of China situating itself in relation to the world, um, and that is why I I I I I call it uh, a globalizing China in the title. So this is about um, China and globalizing China. And uh, the, 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 the second part is about uh, the, the kind of center uh, and periphery kind of dynamic uh, in Chinese-speaking societies. I did my PhD in Hong Kong. Um, so I was very much aware of the sort of China census, sorry, China centrism that people are um, criticizing and engaged with the word Sinophone, um, which is um, intended to critique uh, the kind of mainland China centrism um, of uh, uh, you know trying to uh, 
uh, challenged China, mainland China, as the place, as the origin, and as the sort of、uh, proper definition of Chinese-ness. Right, but、uh, their approach of doing this is to focus on Chinese-speaking societies that are situated at the margins of Chinese-ness.、Um, <clears throat> for example, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Malaysia,、uh, and also other Chinese diasporas.、Uh, but、uh, I I want to do it a little bit differently. I argue that、um, if you look at if you look at the the definition of Chinese-ness as a whole. It's always、uh, contended within mainland China itself. So I think the, the the project of looking at Chinese queerness, right, of looking at how a, a marginalized group、uh, in China negotiate their own、um, kind of sense of Chinese-ness and come up with new scripts for Chinese-ness and reinvent Chinese-ness through a, a reimagination of Chinese kingship. I think that's also that should also be seen as、uh, part and parcel of challenging the kind of state-defined Chinese-ness uh, of uh, the People's Republic China.、Um, so I would say that this book is trying to、uh, situate China in a more kind of dynamic background, both uh, uh, transnationally and also by putting it、uh, in the kind of controversies. And struggles around Chinese-ness itself. Yeah, I think the term、um, "imagined Chinese-ness" that you kind of use、um, in the book、uh, encapsulates that pretty well because it, it's it reminds me of like Benedict Anderson's idea of imagined communities of like a, around nationalism and、um, around、uh, ethnic communities or cultural communities, or in this case, like. Uh, Sinophone communities of、uh, linguistic communities and how these are、um, very much not not there's no static boundaries there's no these material solid boundaries of no exactly、um, who fits where what what considers Chinese ness、um, so I I believe that's a really really interesting intervention、um, so and. and Like you said, this is kind of a complex topic, and I think a lot of the a lot of the topics that you address in this book are very complex. And it's it's like as you mentioned, it might take you know an hour or more to、um, to kind of unpack some of these things, some of these really complex topics that I think a、uh, little bit like the book does、um, great justice to a lot of these really complex topics, even with its with its、um, fairly short length. Um, so and, and yeah, thinking about these things、um, in in the、uh, justice of time,、um, is there anything else from the book that you'd like to kind of bring up real quick before we wrap up this interview?、Um, I think、um, when I started、uh, working on the project, there are not so many、uh, articles or you know、uh, academic discussions about Chinese queerness. Um, but over the years, especially in the last decade,、um, you can see a proliferation of、uh, discussions of Chinese queerness itself, and also queerness in Asia.、Um, so I think、um, I'm glad to see that this book has become part of a、uh, a growing field of queer China and also queer Asia, which、uh, obviously has a, a much longer history and.、Uh, I hope that it contributes、uh, 
um, to this uh, understanding of queerness, right? I, I think, uh, after all, this book is a, 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 a very, as you can tell, it's a very optimistic book. Um, and uh, when I set out writing this book, um, I was very sure that this is a project uh, about hope. Um, these interventions that make uh, in queer theorization and in uh, in kinship studies and also in China studies are all about carving out a space for what Judith Butler calls um, livable lives uh, for queer people in China. It's part of my own struggle and it will continue to be uh, a uh, very difficult struggle for a lot of queer people um, who are still living in a uh, uh, quite adverse kind of situation, right? Um, so um, I do hope that this book brings attention um, to these people who I describe as not living in the stone age of queer politics. I think they are living in a very different condition of queer politics. And uh, I have been haunted um, by this question of, uh, is it queer enough? Um, right. I hope this book partially uh, answers this question that it is queer, but it's just queer differently. And, I sh- and you should never have a set of standards of what is queer or what is radical. Um, so, yeah, <coughs> so hopefully, <coughs> sorry, hopefully that would be my 10 cents to the um, academic discussion of queerness and also for uh, queer people's own struggles with their sexuality within a Confucian kind of kinship system. Yeah, I think you achieved that really well in the book. It's a it's a mix of sort of this kind of uh, realism and, and engagement with like um, like Chinese uh, queers like everyday lives um, um, and what and kind of reading this through the lens of the media and and reading it through the lens of the media does really uh, give this sort of like optimistic and hopeful tone while still being um, very realistic and uh, just a wonderful piece of uh, academia that I just thoroughly enjoyed. Um, so uh, I really appreciate you joining me for this interview, uh, Dr. Lin uh, Song, and um, everyone out there. Thanks for turning, uh, tuning in to the New Books Network, and make sure to check out Dr. Song's book, Queering Chinese Kinship, Queer Public Culture and Globalizing China, and it's available in a Hong Kong University's Press Queer Asia series. Um, this is your host, Cody Skahan, signing off for now. <laughs>